1: It's time for another edition of Political Rewind. Very happy to have all of you with us out there in the audience. I loved hearing, if you were listening to our newscast, Drew Dawson just talked about the Cubs and the Braves playing at Wrigley Field, and it just warmed my heart because I grew up at Wrigley Field in Chicago. Thank you for the memory, uh, Drew Dawson. Uh, You can watch us, of course, on Facebook Live. Just go to the GPB news page on Facebook and we'll be there. You'll be able to see three of our panelists. Uh, Our fourth is in the NPR studios in Washington. So let me just introduce everybody while I can. And let me start this time with Kyle Hayes. He is the founder and um, producer of Peach Pod, which is a terrific podcast that deals with Georgia politics. Kyle is a Georgian, grew up here, works for a think tank in Washington, but is still really on top of what's happening in politics here in the state and reports on it regularly regularly. Uh, on his podcast. How you doing, Kyle?
2: Doing great. Thanks for having me back,
1: Bill. Yeah, we're really happy to have you here. Um, here in the studio, part of the conversation, Patricia Murphy. Patricia Murphy is a syndicated columnist in many papers around the country. You can read her on in Roll Call, where she writes column. She writes for the Daily Beast, and she writes for Garden and Gun, which is like the real kind of that's like the dessert of all the reporting you do, isn't it?
3: Yes. I like to think of it as my palate cleanser after a tough week.
1: <laughs> well, I got that right then. Yes. <laughs> and we have two new panelists who I'm really pleased to be able to introduce to you. Martha Zoller. Martha Zoller was a very, very popular radio host out at WDUN in Gainesville. How many years were you on the air initially? Uh, About 18. 18 years. And then went over to the dark side, got involved in elective (laughs) politics, worked for Senator David Perdue, and then most recently you worked in Brian Kemp's administration, but the lure of broadcasting was too powerful, wasn't it? You're back now. You started yesterday back on the air in Gainesville.
0: That's right. Um, thank you for having me. And, uh, yeah, it's nice to have your hands free. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and and radio, too, where you don't have to wear uh, dress-up clothes every day. That's right. That's um, right. Uh, Martha is uh, pretty well known as a conservative commentator. That's correct. It's, it's uh, safe to say and we're joined also by jeremiah olney jeremiah works at paramount consulting you know uh that firm because that's the firm that theron johnson founded and uh continues to preside over but you're a principal at the agency how did you get to paramount give us just a little background so our listeners know a bit more about you
4: you know it's funny this is actually one of my favorite stories i worked at the georgia Mm -hmm. senate democratic caucus for about three months until the session ended i met theron in that time I leave that job, and I think, I need to find a new job now. I just, I have something to do. And I'm in the car on the way to a job interview, and Theron calls me out of the blue, and he says, hey, what are you up to? Uh, And I say, I'm on the way to a job interview, and he just says, don't take the job. Uh He says, I can't offer you a job now, but in a year from now, maybe. I think this is a terrible decision, then I did it anyway. So (laughs) I've never regretted it for a second. I know, yeah. Well, Theron Johnson asked you to give you a job. You probably should listen to him.
1: Just to take another moment on Paramount. Uh, Theron started that firm two years ago as a consulting firm, and you had a big anniversary celebration last week, and it was pretty staggering, Jeremiah, to see the kind of turnout you got. The governor was there. Speaker David Ralston uh, was there. Mayor Keisha Bottoms was there. You had political leaders from both sides of Mm -hmm. the aisle who came to celebrate. Mike Thurman, a frequent panelist on our show, and of course, the CEO of DeKalb County. It's pretty amazing to see the way in which you have uh, appealed to, and you're, these are not all clients, we should no, point of course, out. Of course. But there are people who have a warm feeling about the work that you do, apparently.
4: I think so. And I think Theron Johnson is just such a, a titan of Georgia Democratic politics. And just at this point, really, Georgia politics overall, you would never expect to see speaker ralston and the governor hang out with someone who worked for barack obama i certainly wouldn't but, so it was a pleasure to see them there
1: all right well we're uh, we welcome you as uh, well to the show today all right let's get right to it uh we know kyle let me start with you on this if i may we um right about now stacy abrams is or about to testify whether she's doing it quite yet she was scheduled at two o'clock On Capitol Hill, she was appearing at the Subcommittee on the Constitution, Civil Rights and Civil Liberties. It's a subcommittee of the Judiciary Committee. And uh, she was there to talk about, on the anniversary of the Supreme Court handing down its decision on a case called Shelby County versus Holder, which was the case in which The Supreme Court threw out sections of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which dealt primarily with pre-clearance of any election changes in states that were considered to have had a history of not treating voters fairly. And they're specifically having that hearing today because this is the anniversary. But Kyle, of course, Abrams is there to continue the Uh, points that she makes all the time, that she feels that there's been voter suppression in Georgia, that it hurt her in her election in 2018, and that she feels one of the main reasons we've had problems is pre-clearance in Georgia is no longer available. Go ahead, Kyle. Talk to us about it.
2: Right. Yeah. So I think part of what you're going to see today in, in her testimony is she's trying to lay out a record about the efforts at at what they would call voter suppression that have happened since the shelby county decision and this is particularly important because of the way the shelby county decision was structured um chief justice john roberts who was writing for the court at that time um said that things had changed dramatically in the south um, and that that was one reason why the formula that determined pre-clearance was something that he felt the court could do away with Congress at any time could pass another formula to reinstitute preclearance. And that's part of the message that you see in her testimony and in the court case that her organization, Fair Fight Action, is laying out there. Because it's bringing out all of this evidence where she says... um, You know, state governments and and local governments have used tactics to make it harder for people of color to vote in a way that the court thought had been done away with when they made this decision in 2013.
1: Yeah, Patricia, this was a 5-4 decision. And of course, it went, you know, it was a political decision between the liberal justices and the more conservative justices in in delivering the opinion. Uh, Justice Roberts said the court. Uh, he didn't say this, but it's it, the, the the way it's reported by by Supreme Court reporters is that the Voting Rights Act uh, Section Four of the Voting Rights Act imposes current burdens that are no longer responsive to the current conditions in the voting districts in question.
3: Well, I would say um, was something that Kyle said made me think of uh, an experience I had when I was covering the 2018 race uh, here in Georgia, uh, that the justice had said that the, these states have changed, and so they no longer require preclearance. Even if the states are changing in the process of changing, the faith in voting and your vote counting has not changed in a lot of communities, and I would say specifically communities of color. And when I was covering the 2018 race, as this as the controversy locally was, uh, was firing up, I talked to African-American voters who have never felt like they were wanted at the polls, welcomed at the polls, and not made to jump over extra hoops to get to the polls. And if you look at which states have made changes since the preclearance uh, requirement was lifted, 14 states have added voting restrictions. A majority of the states that were involved and required to have preclearance have increased restrictions um, for voting. Um, you know, it depends on which side of the aisle you think that those Things are, like exact
1: match, for exact instance. Exact match, yeah.
3: uh, photo ID. Um, and I did talk to voters who... Um, were primarily female Latinas who were getting kicked out of the system because of the exact match standard, because of their, the unusual spellings of their names. Um, there were there were people who felt like they were targets of that bill. And the, the preclearance in, increased their faith in voting because at least there was a second layer of, of scrutiny in that.
1: Martha, a, a good example of what the Abrams people would contend is what happened in Randolph County that became a national story. Randolph County, the county, not the Secretary of State's office, the county wanted to eliminate some of its precincts because they were paying a lot of money uh, for precincts that weren't getting a lot of traffic. Had preclearance still been the rule of law, Randolph County could not have done that unilaterally. They would have had to go to the Department of Justice and explain why they wanted to close some precincts and DOJ would then have been able to either uh, approve or disapprove it. So that's where preclearance was something that many people felt was important to how the process is done.
0: Yeah, but the court did acknowledge, um, and the time when they made the decision was that that they weren't saying you didn't need preclearance. What they said is the rules were basically unchanged since 1965 as far as what was going on in preclearance and not taking into consideration that you might have improvement in areas of the traditional South and other areas of the country, which have been added over the years, um, that were bad areas. Okay. And that maybe needed to be included. So, so I would blame if, if, you need pre-clearance. I would blame that the Congress hasn't taken it up because, again, this, like many other things, they would rather have this as an as an as an argument, it, it, but to to you know something to 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 vote on. But my point about you know what Stacey Abrams is doing today, I, I, you know, I think she's she is very close to people thinking great. She's raising her her profile, but she's throwing her state under the bus. Okay, number one, and number two, I just have a hard time. There's a lot of numbers that are quoted in her testimony. I don't know if they're right or not. But overall turnout was the biggest we have ever seen in a governor's race. Both Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams got more votes than any governor's candidate has ever gotten. And the only percentage of turnout that went down was the percentage of white voters. So uh, to make the argument there was suppression of vote, I got to quote Brian Ror- York here, you know, then Brian Kemp was the worst voter suppression person ever.
1: <laughs> um, Jeremiah, uh, in her testimony, uh, one of this, she, you know, she goes over ground that we've covered that she's talked about frequently and that we've covered on the show a lot. Things like exact match, things like polling places, they're uh, uh, undermanned, and therefore people wait in long lines, and that seems to happen more frequently in uh, c- communities of African American sure. voters. But but she uh, threw out a figure that I had not heard before in, in her testimony. She says that since the Shelby decision in 2012, um, we've had a dramatic increase in the number of polling places, in the numbers of... Let me me see if I can find it exactly. Uh, She says that um, we've had... Now I'm losing my place on this. What did I... Oh, here we go. Uh, Of 159 counties in Georgia, 156 counties removed a higher rate of voters from the rolls, after shelby which resulted in an increase in the number of voters being forced to cast provisional ballots i apologize for struggling to find that for a minute but if that data is true uh and i don't see any reason why she she's certainly not lying about it that is a fascinating statistic
4: yes and i think it's a huge problem as well if you go back to when this decision was made this is exactly what people said was going to happen people are going to remove voters from the rolls in order to effectively suppress the vote change the outcome of the elections because even if we've had, you know, the greatest number of voters come out in 2018, it doesn't change the fact that we still have a lot of improvements to make, and that some people were still prohibited access from the ballot box. Just because we were better doesn't mean we were the best we could be. We could offer same-day voter registration. We should could offer, you know, a national or a state holiday for voting day. There's so many better ways we could open up the ballot box. And there's really no reason to remove people from the voter rolls when voter fraud is, frankly, a myth.
1: Kyle, you know, uh, she's not going to get a free ride in this committee today. Uh, There are a number of witnesses. I don't know quite how long she will be testifying. But, of course, the chair of this subcommittee is Steve Cohen of Tennessee. He, of course, has been a strong proponent of impeachment. Uh, He has been one of President Trump's uh, most vociferous critics on the Hill. So he'll clearly be sympathetic to Abrams, but Louie Gomert from Texas and Jim Jordan from Ohio are also on this subcommittee. Patricia, Kyle, let me start with you, Kyle. They are not going to give her a free ride today.
2: No, not at all. And I think among conservatives that I know, there's this sense of this double standard about The way Abrams has said that the outcome of the 2018 election was unfair, but claims that uh, Trump might not have honored the outcome of the 2016 election or or the way he's described his victory in the Electoral College versus the popular vote. There's a sense that there's a double standard there. And so I would expect to hear some of that from some of these uh, Republican members. Well,
1: also, I think what we might hear, Patricia, is a restating of Remarks that the president made in his campaign announcement down in Orlando, in which without referring to Abrams by name, he railed against people who will not accept the outcome of an election, refuse to concede. And he was clearly uh, talking about the Abrams uh, election without mentioning her by name. I'll bet you they'll mention her by name today. <laughs> well, you know, it really
3: depends on if they bother to show up to this well, hearing, that's right. to be honest with that's you. Right. The Judiciary Committee held a field hearing on this very issue in February in Atlanta, and no Republicans came. Um, it, this is an issue of great concern to Democrats, uh, but one which Republicans on the Hill mostly don't engage on and truly do not believe is a problem. That, so I don't actually think they'll go today.
1: Spoken like someone who used to work. On the hill, <laughs> <laughs> they're like, "Oh, I have a meeting down the hall. I cannot be there." <laughs> I, I, I always, I always try to remember to uh, in introducing Patricia to say that she, of course, was on the staff of both uh, Senator Sam Nunn and uh, Senators Max Cleland, so she knows how it works up there. And
3: that's how I got to know Martha was that Max Cleland was a frequent guest on yes, WDU and
0: right. the Martha Zoller uh, oh, show because course. we knew the power. He,
1: he was yeah. huh? okay. Go ahead. Well, you want to jump in just here? Just
0: one point I want to make. About this As you know, one of the things you didn't mention, Bill, when you introduced me is I did run for Congress in 2012, and so Thank you. Uh, so I am a person that's had to make a concession speech. Okay, and it's not easy. And if if I and st- I consider Stacey Abrams a friend, I've had coffee with her, I've met with her, I I consider us friendly. I we haven't talked in a year or so, but I consider us friendly. Um, and what I would have said to her is that you you accomplished more than any democrat was expected to accomplish i mean it was t- it took believe me and believe me on republican sides people are spending days and nights and nights and days trying to figure out what went wrong even now okay and so so if she had, I think if she had taken the approach of, wow, we came really close, this is what we've got to do going forward, I think it would help a lot of people because we still have independence in this state. I know it doesn't seem like it. I think it would help a lot of people. Um, and it's not easy making that speech, going out there and being gracious about somebody that you think did some things to beat you
1: i'm sure that having never run from office for (laughs) office i've run from office now that's right right. um jeremiah this becomes important in a different way as well because her testimony up there happens to coincide with the fact that the federal lawsuit which her organization fair uh, fight action has filed uh, in dealing with all of these uh, issues of what they call voter suppression has now opened a new front. They are now asking that the judge who who has told the state we are going to continue with this case on May 30th, he ruled, yes, this case can continue. The state tried to stop it. And now they're contending that one of the remedies for this case should be to reinstate uh, the uh, uh, preclearance section of the Voting Rights Act as it applies to the state of Georgia. So this is more than just a dog and pony show on Capitol Hill.
4: It is, yeah, and I think the thing is, Stacey Abrams and, frankly, the voters of Georgia were left with no choice because Congress has refused to act for so long.
1: I'm glad, that's right. Martha, Mm -hmm. I wanted to emphasize that, because Martha did it, you can now. Congress could take this up and could reinstate pre-clearance. Congress could do a lot of things that they choose not to do. (laughs) Amen to that.
4: (laughs) Yeah, this falls at their feet like so many things do these days. And this is such a fundamental issue when it comes to just this country and democracy. Democracy is only as effective uh, when people believe in it. If people don't believe it's effective, whether or not people are voting in record numbers, if people feel like they're being turned away and they don't trust the process, they'll stop showing up to vote.
1: So if the federal court were in fact to grant the plaintiff's request Mm. to reinstate uh, a pre-clearance, it could become a huge... It could have incredible impact nationally, and and it would end up right back up in the Supreme Court. Well, because they couldn't do it just for Georgia. Right, of course. That's that's my point. So... The whole thing ends up back in the Supreme Court again at some point, I assume.
3: And I, I, have, not, I have not known the Supreme Court to to uh, change its mind yeah. and say, oh, now that I think about it, although it does um, kind of It continue. takes about 87 years for that to yeah. happen. Yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. But it does uh, remind us and will remind voters again and again how important those members of the Supreme Court are because the different members of the same court can make different decisions. And so uh, – Democrats' eyes are always on Ruth Bader Ginsburg and asking what kind of potions and health smoothies can they send her to keep her well and healthy.
1: Right, I tell you what, why don't we get our, this is a good time to get our first break of the show out of the way. As we do, uh, Kyle, am I correct, you you told me that you are, your next podcast is going to in some way cover some of the ground that we're talking about here, the Abrams testimony?
2: Yes, we'll be taking a look at the testimony and a deeper look at this case from Fair Fight Action. And then we'll talk about two other cases that are kind of related that should, rulings should come from the Supreme Court this week. One on adding a citizenship question to the census and another on partisan gerrymandering. So lots of elections talk this week.
1: When is that next one going to drop, do you hope? Uh, Thursday. All right, Thursday. So Peach Pod, uh, look for it on Thursday. Let's get a break out of the way and come back. We have a lot more to talk about today on Political Rewind.
2: GPB brings you insights and connects you with your community and our world. In these final days of our fiscal year, which ends on June 30th, I hope you'll make a gift of support to help keep GPB and the programs you hear going strong. And right now, your contribution will be doubled thanks to a generous challenge from Pembroke Advanced Communications, Mariana Hight, and Elizabeth Norman. Go to gpb.org and click Donate at the top of the page. And thanks. On the next Fresh Air, comic and actor
1: Rami Youssef. He co-created and stars in a Hulu semi-autobiographical series called Rami about being the son of Egyptian immigrants and surprising friends by actually being an observant Muslim, but not observant about everything. He has a new HBO stand-up comedy special that premieres Saturday night. Join us. Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3 here on GPB, and you can listen online at gpbnews.org or ask your smart speaker to play GPB. Welcome back to Political Rewind. Uh, We're going to turn to presidential politics uh, for the next segment of the show because, of course, most people know that tomorrow night and Thursday night we will see Democratic presidential candidates in debate for the first time. And I want to throw out what I'm going to make a statement that may make me seem incredibly naive, but I want to hear other people on this. There are so many Democrats now, 23, 24, depending on how you count them that I have to acknowledge as much attention as I pay to politics every single day and as tuned in as I am to what's happening, Jeremiah, I'm having a very hard time focusing on a presidential race with so many people involved in this thing, which is why these debates could be the start of people like many of us focusing a little bit.
4: Am I incredibly naive? No, I don't think you're naive at all. I do the same thing. I follow politics for a living, and I find it incredibly difficult as well. I mean, I'll see a candidate come up, I'll see someone speak, and then I'll find out afterwards that they're running for president. I am like, I feel like I should have known that when they up <laughs> on stage. Um, but no, I think these debates will really be very clarifying and will offer them a chance, because most of us don't know most of them. We don't know what their stories are, we don't know what their experience is, and this is their opportunity, their first opportunity to really build a narrative for themselves and say, I am this candidate, I'm that candidate, and also to take pot shots at Joe Biden to make more of a name for themselves. Uh,
1: but you know what's interesting about this, Martha? I mean, of course, we go back to 2016 when we had 16 or maybe 17, 17. Yeah. Republicans in the race, they all debated on the same stage time and time again. Of course, what we're going to see tomorrow night and Thursday night is a setup of 10 and 10, uh, picked apparently in terms of grouping randomly by the Democratic National Committee. But what, what the difference in the atmosphere for the Republicans in 2016 was that from the very moment the first debate started, Trump became the star of those debates and shaped the debates all of them around Mm -hmm. who Mm -hmm. he was as a personality. I don't think we're going to see any one Democrat stand out immediately in that way tomorrow or Thursday night.
0: I think we need a bracket and some betting. You know, I think it would be a lot more fun that way. Look, I'm I'm a person, too, that follows politics all the time. And I, I was uh, sent uh, a YouTube video of some uh, songwriter that's written a song about all these candidates. And literally, it was the first time that I had actually seen all their faces, you know, where they kind of said their names and said their faces. Yep. And I didn't know Marianne Williamson was running. I mean, she... I have all her books, but that doesn't mean <laughs> that I would I would, I would would vote for her for president. So um, this I'm, this
1: song was kind of like how we had to learn the capital yeah, of the United States. Yeah, exactly States. right. <laughs> how, how, a bill,
0: how a bill becomes a law, right? <laughs> uh, so it's going to be a problem, I think, for Democrats because there's so many, but I think people look at this as such a great opportunity and they think that, okay, we can do what the Republicans did last time. We'll have this rumble and one of us is going to come out of it. You know, my um, daughter, who leans a little more left than I do, asked me What do you think, Mom? And, um, you know, I'm I'm just disappointed Kamala Harris isn't getting more traction because I like her the best of all of them. Not to say I'm a conservative. I wouldn't vote for her, but she's not getting anywhere. And that's what's happening to a lot of these folks. They're not getting
1: anywhere. I apologize. for Patricia, this is not to say that Democrats won't eventually come up with a nominee who will attract an enormous amount of attention. That will happen. It's just at this early stage. It's it's, it's also blurry. fuzzy and blurry. Yes, yeah.
3: I actually was in South Carolina over the weekend. It was the South Carolina Democratic uh, Convention. Did you go to the uh, fish fry. I went to the fish oh. fry. You are special. <laughs> it was hotter than Dante's Inferno. <laughs> it was That's South Carolina. Tough. Go ahead, make,
1: I'm sorry, I so, interrupted you.
3: Uh, Twenty-two of the twenty-three spoke f- four different times over the course of two days. So it was groups of. Of uh, voters and activists seeing twenty-two different people, Um, and you just could have—you could just see the energy start to drain out. About after the sixth person, Um, voters were telling me they can't keep them straight. They're confused. It. Help it, And it creates a lot of strange, unintended consequences. It helps Joe Biden a lot because people have heard of him. Um, it forces a lot of these other candidates, instead of talking about issues, just to say who they are and where they're from and what, they're, what state they're from and generally what they think. They're not even getting into issues. They're spending so much time on their biographies mm-hmm. to distinguish themselves. And then really qualified candidates, really qualified candidates are complete nobodies out there? So I was um, on Saturday. A friend of a friend of mine and I were standing in the back of the convention, and John Hickenlooper walks past. Um, and he was the former governor of Colorado, S- very popular, and mayor of Denver, and mayor of Denver, very popular, very effective, very high approval rating. No- Nobody had any idea who this guy was. He was just wandering around eating Twizzlers. And so we (laughs) walked up to him and we're like, how's it going? He's like, you know, I really thought that because I had done all these things, that people would care. And that just doesn't seem to be happening right now. And he was, it wasn't discouraged. He just was a little surprised. Um, There are still, you know, it's still 248 days until the South Carolina primary. There's a lot of time between now and then. But it creates a really weird dynamic when you voters don't know who these people are, and the good ones are really getting overshadowed by the publicity seekers.
1: Kyle, I'm wondering what to what extent race will play a role in the two debates for two reasons. One, because of course, we've and we've talked about it on this show. We talked about it on Friday. Uh, Joe Biden, Uh, making this point that uh, he existed in the United States Senate when even segregationists like James O. Eastland and uh, Herman Talmadge, he was able to work with them to try to pass effective legislation. And we're going to talk about that in a couple minutes. But second, and more perhaps right now in the news in that, Pete Buttigieg, who is dealing as mayor of South Bend with another incident of police violence in South Bend, Um, a black man shot and killed by a white police officer who did not have his body camera turned on. And let's listen to just a little bit of a a nightmare scenario for a candidate for president uh, over the weekend, Buttigieg trying to face off with the community that was up in arms.
2: Get the racists off the streets. It's disrespectful that I wake up every day scared. It's disrespectful that I have three boys that I have to teach today what to do. Get them off the streets.
4: I will say that if anyone who is on patrol is shown to be a racist or to do something racist, in a way that is substantiated, that is their last day on the street.
1: Kyle, this is a guy who is beginning to attract an enormous amount of excitement. Uh, He's young, he's articulate, he's charismatic. What does this mean for him as a candidate?
2: Yeah, I think he's in a really tough position here, because this is a really tough issue to try to filter through presidential partisan politics. Um, I think to some extent, Mayor Pete and the community of South Bend are having to deal with this through the filter of a heightened awareness of the pain in the African-American community because of police shootings like these. And so it's a bigger challenge than just the single event that came before him. You know, I think for him, this is an opportunity to show leadership in his own community and try to back up some of the proposals and the ideas that he's talked about But it's a hard thing for him to do when he's also supposed to be on the campaign trail and that this is an issue that's probably going to get mixed up into the other discussions with race and the Biden comments in this debate this week.
1: Uh, Jeremiah, I frankly am not convinced that he can stay out as a presidential candidate with this kind of. Terrible, terrible issue in South Bend. I mean, it does strike me that he's got to make a decision about whether his community needs him as mayor right now, not to mention how this damages him. One of the problems he's had is attracting African-American support from the for, from the get-go. This will certainly not help him. And he's got a community that's hurting.
4: That's true. And if you look at the numbers out of South Carolina, he was polling, I think at zero was the number he was at. So he's really not picking up much traction there yet. And if you go back and look at South Bend, it's really he's a victim of anything of more bad timing because this is happening in communities all over the country. But South Bend in particular, they have a... 26% black population and 5% of the police force is black. They have had years to address this problem. It's just because it's been allowed to stagnate for so long, it's getting worse.
1: And under his leadership, and it's And under his stagnated.
4: leadership, absolutely. He's been mayor, I think, since 2012. It's eight years, yeah. Yeah. So he's had time to address these problems. This is not the first time he's hearing about these things. And if he's going to go out and he's going to run for president, I think he really should have been more cognizant of the fact that these things are on the back burner. There's a lot of problems in South Bend with the way it's policed. And... I, I think
3: he should not be the mayor and running for yeah. president. And yeah. I don't see how he recovers from this. Yeah. And I honestly don't think he should be allowed to recover from this. I mean, I I don't often express a strong opinion, but um, for him to be he, he is a complete media sensation. And he has there is a woman behind him who is a very well-known um, publicist, just a superstar in Democratic uh, publicity, you know, worlds who has really created Mayor Pete to be this media sensation, but for this to be going on in his community, um, uh, to me, it's actually unconscionable to be out around the country when this has been going on. And he is a
0: victim of nothing, in my opinion, except his own poor decisions and follow-up. Well, and especially at his age, finishing his term and then running, there'd be another opportunity. And The qualifiers in that statement he just made were painful to me as a person who has grown up in the South and who went through desegregation of DeKalb County schools at the time. You know, all of that sort of thing. To hear him qualify, it should have been a very clear statement. If there's a racist in the police force, they're out. That's it. You know, you can worry about the details somewhere else. You don't have to parse the words all the way through. It yeah, hurt. Yeah, it I th- hurt.
1: I think you make a great point. That's two points here, Kyle. Number one, to pick up on what Martha's saying, uh, one of the things that people have seemingly been attracted to on Buttigieg is that he is very calm in the way he expresses his opinions. Uh, he seems thoughtful. He seems very, very bright. And yet, I chose that exchange intentionally because it did seem to me that—and it didn't matter whether you could see it or hear it, it's the same—that Martha's right. His methodical way of talking in that instance, without being able to show any kind of real compassion, uh, probably is very detrimental to him, Kyle.
2: Yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, because this builds on some history, I mean, shortly after he was elected mayor, he fired the uh, first African-American police chief of South Bend. And it was over this issue where the police chief had been accused of recording phone calls of his own officers, but his own officers were alleged to to have made racist statements about the police chief and other people in the community on those phone calls. Uh, Mayor Pete fired the police chief and then has prevented audio from those calls coming out, claiming that it you know violates some sort of wiretapping laws related to taping these phone calls. That was an issue that was clearly where the community clearly was not satisfied with his response. And then this just builds on that record. And um, there's also criticisms of the fact that when he talks about South Bend's economic recovery, That is a recovery that has largely benefited the white residents of South Bend and not the people of color. Um,
1: So uh, let me ask you, Jeremiah, uh, if you're if you're a consultant for Mm -hmm. one of the other candidates trying to make a name for her or himself in the debate. Do you go after Buttigieg, or do you realize that there's no advantage to doing it at all? He's uh, struggling on his own.
4: I just think it's unnecessary right now. I mean, if you're, say, Elizabeth Warren, you're looking at Bernie Sanders, you're looking at Joe Biden. If you're Cory Booker, you're looking at Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden. Going after Mayor Pete for that, I'm not going to try his last name on my first time on the radio. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I could see it uh, coming up from one of the moderators during the debate, right, and I think, it he, needs surely to think will. he needs to think very long and hard about showing compassion. I mean, if you see Donald Trump in 2016 elections, he was forceful. He was boastful. He showed a lot of personality, and I personally respect thoughtful, considerate people. But you also need to indicate that you feel their pain as well to the best of your ability.
0: Reminds me of that question to Mike Tukakis. Mike Dukakis. About if Kitty, if Kitty were killed, would he want, and then he was so cold and methodical, and he was that same kind of governor. He ended up getting the nomination, but he was that kind of governor where he was methodical and he, people liked him. He was even keeled. All of that. Good point. Also, you have to put it in the context of where the Democratic
3: Party is today. And when I'm out talking to voters and when I did over the weekend in South Carolina, criminal justice is a hugely important issue, especially in the African-American community. Um, Private prisons. There's a lot of talk about ending private prisons, a lot of talk about the 1994 crime bill, um, over-incarceration of the black population. And for this to be his introduction to those South Carolina voters is, actually, I can't come. I've got this thing going on at home. He did go to South Carolina. And then the only other event he did was in North Augusta, um, South Carolina, which is not obviously the heart of the black community in that state. So and he does. He's been asked, who are your black supporters? He can't name any. I mean, he's got a huge problem that goes beyond this event.
1: All right. So that's Buttigieg, yeah. and we'll see what happens with him. But Patricia Murphy Ray certainly will come up, and other candidates will certainly speak to Joe Biden's uh, uh, f- flawed remarks in which he said, uh, oh, you know, I used to be able to work with Eastland and Talmadge. To, uh, I didn't like them. He called Herman Talmadge one of the meanest people he'd ever known. But he's gotten enormous pushback, Cory Booker particularly. Mm -hmm. Kamala Harris has also gone after him saying, don't talk to us about how wonderful it was. The good old days when you used to get along so well with these uh, segregationist, uh, probably racist uh, members of the United States Senate. But you wrote a column about this for Roll Call that really caught my attention. And I want to just, if I can read the lead and you explain it, (laughs) the lead to your column about this is there's a name for working with someone you can't stand. It's called legislating. What's your point?
3: So my point um, was to and, you know, it's the benefit and the detriment to Joe Biden of how lo- just how long he's been in Washington. Um, when he came to the Senate uh, in 1972, there were multiple avowed segregationists, sort of a remnant of the 50s who had been elected from their home states, um, who then were in great powerful positions, um, including Jim Eastland, who was the chairman of the Judiciary Committee. So, it is joe biden's turn to say i would like to be on the judiciary committee he is extremely solicitous of jim eastland and he has to be and those were the kinds of relationships that were necessary but also mutually beneficial in washington 20 30 40 years ago and i think to understand biden's relationship with eastland you also need to understand ted kennedy's relationship with eastland in that they did a lot of horse trading and Kennedy would trade, I'll, well, if you let a vote on my judicial nominee go forward, I won't object to or I won't make a big stink about your judicial nominee with on the Judiciary Committee. And so one of those judges um, was uh, uh, multiple, well, I'm going to forget his name That's right fine. now, but uh, multiple liberal judges. Um, and then Eastland ended up having Ted Kennedy come speak at Ole Miss graduation. I mean, they became very real friends. But that that. was then.
1: That was then. And this is... Now, your old boss, Sam Nunn. I think we could go back and probably find speeches in which Sam Nunn sang the praises of his predecessor, Richard Russell, Uh, Perhaps even Herman Talmadge. You know,
3: there are are so many to name. Um, I I think the problem for Joe Biden is not only his language, which is so out of step with the times, um, but also his approach to a number of these issues. um, His real problem is the 94 crime bill with this uh, with this group of voters. Um, He's you know, it's is he the right? Is he a racist? I don't think anybody thinks that about Joe Biden. is he the candidate for this party today? I think that's what that was the problem with those comments. Well,
1: yeah, yes, um, partly Jeremiah because it reminds everybody how long he's been. My God, he's talking about the late seventies in the U.S. <laughs> Senate, that good old boys club. But, but so far his African American support seems to be holding, and it is his African American support that has kept him at the top of the polls.
4: I mean, that's his bulwark is what it is. If he can hold on to that, he can make it a long, long way through the primary, maybe all the way to the end. And I think part of that is, you know, he had eight years with the first African-American president. He is inherently tied to him. And when voters black or white or anyone else think of joe biden they think vice president joe biden before they think senator joe biden and i think it's to his detriment that he keeps bringing up the good old days because he looks at them now through rose tinted glasses he remembers the lunches and the dinners and the speeches he doesn't remember the horrible segregationist policies that these people were pursuing at the time
1: you know martha i think uh, uh, jeremiah uh, made this point that that i thought about afterward the triangulation that's going to go on in these debates who decides to go after <laughs> who because they need to get into the pecking order But there's one thing for sure, given his his uh, status as the front runner, Joe Biden's going to be under a lot of fire. And this is one of the issues that they're going to take him on over.
0: No doubt about it, because, look, with 24 people in the race and we don't know who is going to end up on the ballots. We don't know. But, you know, you're going to have a lot of people on the ballot for the Democratic primary, depending on who it is. And Biden is the one you've got to get the number down on because someone's going to win these before people start dropping out. With twenty five percent, thirty percent, thirty five percent, and and they've got to chip away at him that way because they don't have. To your point, Mayor Pete was polling at like one. There's a whole bunch of them are polling at zero or one. Yeah. And you know, really, is that you know, it couldn't be. You know, my old boss, Senator produced said I started out at at three percent with a plus or minus four percent, which means I could have been minus one. You know, you don't know what it <laughs> is, but uh we'll just have to see where it goes. But I think Biden. Sure, other people are going to be criticized, Mayor Pete, whatever, but Biden is going to be the key target. By the
1: way, Purdue is polling at one until he put on that jeans jacket. (laughs) (laughs) Let's do this. Let's get uh, another break out of the way. And when we come back, we'll have more on Political Rewind.
2: GPB's fiscal year ends on June 30th. At this critical time, we remind you that listener support makes all the programs you hear on GPB possible. Help us end the year strong and your contribution will be matched dollar for dollar thanks to a generous challenge from Pembroke Advanced Communications, Mariana Height, and Elizabeth Norman. Please go to gpb.org or call 800-222-4788. And thank you.
3: Solar is booming in Georgia, driven by lots of sunshine and plenty of land. Land that once grew peanuts, cotton, and corn. I
4: hate to see it go, but things change. and it was a golden opportunity so we took
0: advantage of it
2: i'm mary louise kelly how the push for renewable energy is changing southwest
3: georgia plus the latest on tensions with iran this afternoon on all things considered
1: from npr news four till seven today on
4: gpb or you can listen online at gpbnews.org
1: we're back uh, patricia murphy uh, is with us kyle hayes is with us from npr in washington and our two first-time members of the panel who have been really fun to have on uh, today. I have to say, uh, Jeremiah Olney of Paramount Consulting and Martha Zoller of WDUN, back on the air, back doing her show every day. You having fun? I mean, I'm it's only fun. been two days. No, but, but. <laughs> it's, it's,
0: there is a relationship in radio Yeah, that, I mean, and you had it in television, too, to some degree, but there's a relationship because it's give and take in radio. We take callers. We hear from folks. It's great.
1: Yeah. Uh, speaking of uh, relationships in radio, I do have to give a shout-out. Robert Jimison is sick today. Uh, uh, Tom Faust is not feeling at his best. So I really have to give a shout-out to uh, Ivan Lichtenstein and Carly Broder, our, two of our interns who have really stepped up and produced a lot of what this show is all about today. So I'm grateful to them. And Jesse Neiswanger, our engineer, has been right there to keep <laughs> us going. Thanks uh, to all of you for that. Uh, it, let me uh, turn to you on this, Patricia. You know, we we know that for months and months and months, members of the Georgia congressional delegation, particularly Republicans, were working like crazy to assure federal funding, the amount needed for the Savannah Harbor project, deepening the harbor project, uh, that that project. They got the money. And now suddenly we're hearing from the head of the Port Authority that that some of the proposed tariffs uh, that Trump is thinking about, on the Chinese will impact these enormous cranes. These called They're called ship-to-shore cranes, I believe, that need to be bought. China's the only place they're manufactured. The Port Authority has put aside something like $70 million for a dozen of them. But now, apparently, they could be covered by the new tariffs, which would escalate the cost of the project uh, Astronomically. And it's just another example of these unintended consequences when the president starts talking about tariffs.
3: Yes, it sure is, as are, I'm sure, the farmers feeling that same pain. I mean, we're saying this just all over the state, all over the country. When you slap, when you threaten, we don't know if this is going to happen, we threaten to put a 25% tariff on our largest trading partner behind Canada. Um, you're going to have a number of unintended consequences because you're trying to solve a narrow problem with a very wide solution. And when you're getting, and Martha, I'm sure knows this as well, um, when you're getting funding for something like the ports, you go in with your request, you have everything nickel and dimed, and uh, the cranes will cost X amount. This is the amount. It takes years and years and years and years to get funding approved for this, to cobble together the private, the federal, the state, the local, to get it, to get just enough to buy what you need to get this done. And if it's gonna cost 25% more, you're not doing the job if you don't have the cranes that you that you need.
1: So Martha, your former boss, uh, uh, Purdue, uh, Senator David Purdue and Johnny Isaacson are back in the game again, apparently trying to talk to the White House and saying, "Please leave these cranes alone."
0: <laughs> well, and uh, and you said mostly Republicans um, for the delegation, but the whole delegation well, the was whole unified delegation. on this. Sure. I mean, this was Thank something that was for good that. for, yeah. for right. everybody. This was a right. great example of everybody getting together yeah. and working on this one project. Yeah, I mean, I feel encouraged uh, about what's going to happen the rest of the week and that we're probably not going to see these tariffs go into play. Uh, I think what you've seen is that the president, um, you know, is fully aware of what unintended consequences are. He's He is gambling and winning more often than not as it relates to this. And, um, you know, I think you're going to see a decision soon. That's all I can say. Hmm.
2: I, don't, I think I would disagree in that I I have struggled to understand what the clear vision for President Trump is in some of these trade moves, and I've been a little bit surprised that, you know, on, on this issue with the cranes and the Savannah Port, on a lot of the tariffs on agricultural products, People who would probably be Trump voters are sort of taking hits for the president when they feel some of the downstream economic consequences of some of his policies. And I am honestly a little surprised over and over again that they are willing to sort of step up and say, yes, you know, despite taking a little pain here we back the president in these trade actions i I have
0: traveled all over georgia in the last five years but especially in the last year since the tariffs went into place spent a lot of time with farmers in georgia and they will pull me aside and they will say exactly that we're hurting but we think this is the short-term pain for long-term gain, and, and, you know, we're behind the president. That's what I'm hearing. Our
1: patriot farmers, an expression that the president has now taken up, which is really kind of makes you squirm a little, because it sounds a little like Soviet Russia when he uses that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's not a characterization of President Trump. That's just that expression does have a strange ring to it.
4: (laughs) And also, it helps a lot that he's subsidizing their pain as well, to the tune of billions and billions of dollars, the people who are hurting most from his tariffs, he's more than happy to, you know, kind of provide them a form of socialist care when it benefits his re-election efforts.
1: But don't you think, Patricia, that one of the reasons that Martha finds that people still are supporting the president, despite the fact that he's causing some pain for the farmers, for instance, is there's one thing that everybody agrees on, and that's our trade relationship with China is entirely out of whack. Nobody prior to President Trump has been able to make an effective change in it, so to some extent they what they're saying is good for him he's trying a new approach
3: and I am also hearing that I have to yeah. say I mean these are people inclined to support the president in the first place but they have been yelling from the depths of despair since 1994 honestly guys these trade deals are not working out for us this is not helping us You you say that we're not in pain but we are that was a, a, a huge amount of the momentum that the president got um, during his campaign yeah. in 2016 was listening Listening to those people and doing something about it. He's doing something. Um, I also hear that this is not a bottomless well of, of uh, support that is never ending, and it doesn't matter how it turns out, they're going to need some results at some point. But right now, They are with him. And, um, but there's a great uh, piece in the Post today that says, President Trump bravely saves us from himself. And it sort of (laughs) details all of these instances when he says, I'm going to do this horrible thing. Don't make me do it. He's like, Oh, I actually am not going to do it. As in, everyone relieved. And so it, it, it has become a pattern of his presidency to issue these. Gigantic, horrifying threats, and not really deliver on them, and say you're you're so very welcome. So we'll see how this sounds. He he's you know he's made a lot of threats, so he's
1: right. not
0: lived up to. He's uh, a salesman. Yeah. yeah.
1: All right, we got time for one more issue that I mentioned in the headlines of the show, so I want to uh, get to it if I can. Uh, Martha Zoller, you were at this big party that Paramount Consulting had last week, and one of those political leaders who was there was Bob Trammell, the Minority Leader of the Georgia House, and um, you know, we know that Democrats feel energized by. The uh, abortion law, believing that they're going to be able to win back a lot of seats, and they very well might have some success, particularly in Metro Atlanta. But there's at least one organization, the Family Policy Alliance of Georgia, which is going to go after some very specific people. One of them being the Minority Leader Bob Trammell, uh, and he's in a district. He's not Metro. He's he's in a he's in a in a much different situation, and. Uh, he had a very close election last time around. What's particularly noteworthy from the state perspective is that if Democrats were able to win control of the House, he would be in line to be the next speaker unless the, these uh, uh, conservative groups can force him out.
0: I think if there's anything we learned from the 2018 elections, there are a lot of close races, whether they, regardless of how they went in 2018, there were a lot of close races in the Georgia House and the Georgia Senate. and Congressionally. OK. Um, and so I think we you know, we're on this precipice where we feel a little unstable. Um, I think there's a there's a there is some encouragement and and a lot of happiness on the Democrat side. There's concern on the Republican side um, because, I, you know, a lot it took a lot of us by surprise, especially like in Gwinnett County and Republican strongholds and places like that. So, yeah, it doesn't surprise me that. Um, uh, groups are going to go target people on both sides, whether it's Bob Trammell or somebody else. Um, so I, I think we're going to see a lot more of that. And you're going to see, again, you know, the question has to be, who's more powerful, these groups or party structures?
1: Kyle, you know, we already know that the 7th District race, particularly in the 6th District, to some extent, are going to be national stories. The 7th may be the biggest congressional race in some ways. Um but uh, I think these Georgia legislative races, Kyle, are going to be very uh, much in the national headlines because we are at, a, at an inflection point, don't you think?
2: Yeah, and I don't know if anybody remembers, but Speaker Ralston began the session by asking voters not to expect purity of his members because it'd be hard for swing district Republicans to defend things like an abortion ban. They went the entirely other direction and the party backed it. And so it'll be really interesting to see if... Ralston's caution in the beginning of session ends up being proved right if they end up losing because of this or if it does spur enthusiasm for Republicans.
1: We're out of time. Do you have 15 seconds to add to that by any chance, Patricia Murphy?
3: I, I would just say, if I'm uh, <laughs> Mr. Trammell, the last thing I want is a primary challenge when I also, at some point, may have to worry about a general challenge. Right. Um, th- that's not the dynamic yeah. you want for your caucus. <laughs>
1: Absolutely. <laughs> we are completely out of time. But my thanks to uh, Martha Zoller, to Jeremy old need of Patricia Murphy and up there in Washington, Kyle Hayes. Uh, It's been great having you all with us today for what I thought was a terrific conversation. We're back with another show tomorrow at two. I'll see you then.